is a test of the emergency podcast system. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to another fine episode of Historian Splaining. I'm joined by your regular host, Sam Biagetti, the lucid, erudite, though sometimes grumpy, <laughs> uh, irascible, we prefer, <laughs> man that you've all come to know and love. I'm Michael Sokolovsky, co-producer of podcasts, collaborator. We're here to do an emergency podcast broadcast. Special comment on Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and the royal crisis. That's right. We have to dish. <laughs> yes, we have to dish. I'm um, so excited. <laughs> uh, so Sam really wanted to do this episode about what's at stake here with this Meghan Markle royal family crisis. What's the history here? And, you know, what is something that for us us plebeians, what, what can we take from it? And, um, and also we just love to dish, so... Yeah, the royal. This is the great thing about the royals is the endless dish material. They are just the endless well of drama, and that's why I love them. Okay, so before we go into the specifics of this scandal, tell tell me a little bit about the the royal family. Why is the royal family important? Why should people care about the royal family? It's my understanding that they don't really have a lot of power. Why do they even exist? Why do they matter? Yeah, so, you know, it's up to everyone to judge for themselves whether they care about this or that, but it's definitely important. And I think it's ironic sometimes when I see people who are kind of too cool for school and they say, isn't it so silly how all these people care so much about the royal family when it doesn't matter? And they don't realize that that's a contradiction, that if so many people care about it, ipso facto, it matters. <laughs> In and of itself, that means it matters. Okay. So the royal family, they are a figurehead institution, right? They no longer run the country with any kind of hard power. They don't even really exercise veto power like they used to just 100 years ago. They've basically been relegated to a ceremonial role, right? But that ceremonial and symbolic role is really enormous. You know, in a country that used to be a major imperial power, and as of about 150 years ago, was really the premier imperial power on Earth, was at the forefront of the age of steel and steam. It had a massive empire upon which the sun never set. And now it's really fallen from that position. You know, it's still a first world country and it's still important, but it's really a second rate power and it's overshadowed by the US and also in different ways overshadowed even by Germany and other European countries economically. So there's had to be a massive reckoning, which has never really come to a head, but a reckoning with what kind of country is Britain now. And what does it mean to be British today? And where does Britain fit into the world? And the monarchy is really the main vestige of that kind of idealized, glorious British past, that kind of past moment in the sun. They're the holdover. And so they remain as kind of the symbol of Britain, of British glory. And they then set the pace and send the cues as to how should people should adjust their behavior, their self-conception, their identities as British today. You know, what is, what is important about Britain? What's distinctive about Britain? 
does being British matter? Who is British? Who counts? Who should be embraced as part of British society? All of that is bound up in sometimes very, very subtle things that the royals do or don't do and say or don't say. Okay, can you give us some post-war examples? So I'm, I'm talking oh, post-war. Well, just I'm talking about periods where we have a royal family and they have a lot of symbolic power. Mm-hmm. What are some things that have happened that involve the royal family that has this, where the symbolic power actually had a real effect on people? Like say from 1945 to, to now. Like, what are some examples in in that time period? Well, you know, there are repeated crises that bring into question things like divorce. Is divorce really fully acceptable in British society? And that's something that didn't really happen until pretty recently. You know, divorce was still very taboo, and that came up in crises like, can the Queen's sister marry a divorced man or not? And also in a more subtle and kind of ongoing way that often happens in the background outside of these crises, the queen has really tried to send a sort of subtle message about who has status in British society. The queen's honors have only grown more and more important through the years. You know, every uh, twice every year on New Year's and the Queen's birthday, the Queen issues lists of who is getting titles, you know, who's going to get a knighthood, who gets to be Sir Paul McCartney or Dame Judi Dench, or who gets OBE or CBE and all these little alphabet soup of honorary letters next to their names. And people really pay attention to that. And the palace has really dipped deeply into British society looking at whoever, scholars, scientists, artists, singers, activists, and kind of pulled them in to what used to be this closed world of aristocratic status. And it's really sent a kind of pervasive message about who ought to be considered important in British society. It's sort of woven in newly emerging elites, elites from the immigrant communities, from pop culture, kind of into the old status structure that used to just be for the titled nobility. And the queen has pretty clearly been at the center of that. We don't know a lot in detail about exactly what she thought, but she clearly is a driving force there. And also, if you look at what the monarchy has done, you know, since they have kind of faded out of real hard power into just a ceremonial symbolic role, initially, like under Victoria... That symbolic role, or actually I should say before Victoria, that symbolic role mainly was representing Britain abroad to other sovereign nations, like to Europe. So it was a diplomatic role, which, you know, worked a lot through diplomatic marriages. Then it became a symbolic role of representing Britain to the empire, to the colonies, Right. And Victoria was proclaimed Empress of India. So she's she's Queen Empress and her successors were King Emperors of Britain and India. And they sort of took on a lot of the pageantry, you know, the grand royal tours, the visits to parliaments in the colonies. All of this became sort of part of the the fabric of the empire. And then since the empire has gone away, it's shifted to a symbolic role of representing the British nation to itself and sort of positioning who is Britain, 
who counts as part of Britain, and how should Britain relate to other countries now that they are no longer colonies, now that they've gained independence, which mostly happened, like you said, from 1945 to today. All these nations, India, Pakistan, the Caribbean nations, the African nations have become independent. And the queen, we know for certain, the queen is very invested in that process. It's very important to her that Britain commit itself to the Commonwealth. And she's really made sure that Britain spends a lot of time and energy and money on maintaining this kind of adjusted new imperial relationship where Britain, you could say, is kind of first among equals. You know, it's this kind of we're all equal, but some are more equal than others situation where in the Commonwealth, which has 54 members, All of those nations are supposed to be independent and sovereign, but the queen is still the head of the commonwealth. And there's this weird sort of relationship of sharing money, of aligning themselves diplomatically around certain crises like the apartheid controversy, and also allowing a certain degree of free trade and free migration among the commonwealth nations. So it's this sort of You could see it as kind of a ghost of empire or as kind of this, you know, idealized new version of empire. And the queen really believes that's crucial for maintaining Britain's prestige and position in the world and for maintaining the monarchy's position and prestige in Britain and in the world, which, you know, in her mind probably go hand in hand. So this is a real significant influence on the world stage. So the two main things are kind of the morale of the British people is wrapped up to a certain degree in what is happening with the royal family and also some sort of international relations among Commonwealth countries. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think, so crucial today. And this is why I think the Meghan Markle disaster is significant. In the past 10 years or so, there's been this crisis of Britain, of Britain's own identity and Britain's place in the world. And there's been a lot of tension and friction between two different ways of viewing, of imagining Britain in the world. And one is more European. It involves the EU and seeing Britain as another European social democratic nation that should be closely aligned with France and Germany and the other continental nations. Or on the other hand, which is often seen as the more old fashioned way of seeing things, imagining Britain in the Commonwealth and seeing Britain having trading and diplomatic partners in Canada, also in the U.S., but that's different. But Canada, Australia, and Africa, India, the Caribbean. And Britain at different times, especially in the post-war era, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, Britain often had labor shortages and needed more people. And the initial response was to allow total unrestricted free migration from the Commonwealth countries into Britain. And hundreds of thousands of people did migrate to Britain. But not from like France and Germany, countries that aren't. Those are not Commonwealth countries. No, and no, no, no. I mean, some, but there were limits and restrictions on who could move to Britain from Germany or France in the 1950s and early 60s, which there were not from the Commonwealth countries which is a, you know, a sort of strange historical juncture that we don't think about today. But in many ways, in the later 20th century, British people who saw themselves as anti-racist and who wanted to believe in a more kind of 
integrated or colorblind British society, they embraced the Commonwealth as the embodiment of that ideal. And the people who were against this Commonwealth relationship often were more openly racist. You know, like Enoch Powell was sort of the big opponent of racial integration and of migration from the Commonwealth into Britain. And he was part of this kind of broader shift that happened in the 1970s and 80s, where the conservatives were actually pro-EU. And this really came to a head then with Thatcher in the 80s, where she embraced the EU and encouraged European integration. She saw this as a perfect arena for free trade and capitalist development among advanced European societies. And she hated the Commonwealth. And she really butted heads with Queen Elizabeth over the Commonwealth. Did that affect who was allowed to emigrate into into Great Britain at the time? Yes. So a series of laws were passed in the 70s and 80s. So starting sort of with Enoch Powell's influence in the 70s and then continuing with Thatcher in the 80s, there were new restrictions put in place. So you, you had to get a visa. Even if you were from the Commonwealth, you had to get a visa and you had to show that you had skills or that you already had a job secured in the UK. And so it became more restrictive. So it wasn't just completely free, no-fault immigration from the Commonwealth nations into Britain anymore, and it never has been since. But nonetheless, still, you get more favored status. You get more of a, a sort of easier inside track. Like, for example, you don't have to pass an English language test to migrate into Britain from India or Jamaica or South Africa the way you do if you're coming from, you know, Russia or Brazil for instance. So prior to like the Thatcher turn towards being less accommodating of com- of the Commonwealth countries, do you think Queen Elizabeth and the royal family, because they had a lot of goodwill with those places, that directly impacted policy, that it, it actually encouraged more immigration, more diversity in Britain to happen during the 50s and 60s? Well, no. I mean, the governments in the 50s and 60s wanted migration for economic reasons. They wanted people to do the low-wage labor. And that worked well for them until certain Britons started to see them as competitors who were competing for the same jobs, and it became controversial. In the Commonwealth countries, you know, I'm not an expert on the politics of all those nations, but certainly the pattern is that the monarchy and the Commonwealth are controversial in those other countries. And a few countries have decided to leave the Commonwealth. The first one to do so was Ireland, (laughs) maybe for obvious reasons. They were happy to just dissolve that historical ceremonial connection with Britain. Others, like India, have abolished the monarchy in the sense that they changed their constitution to declare their own president to be their head of state, not the queen, but then subsequently reapplied to rejoin the Commonwealth as a republic. So there are a number of countries now where the queen is no longer the head of state and people are happy to be rid of that kind of vestige of colonialism, but they still want that special favored relationship with Britain, and they are part of the Commonwealth. And India, of course, is the biggest example of that, but there are others too. And just to let you know, out of out of all the Commonwealth, there are 15 countries where the queen is still the head of state. She is, she is still the monarch of these other 15 countries, and they are Antigua and Barbuda, Australia, the Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, Canada, Grenada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, the Solomon Islands, and Tuvalu. 
And I know that in a lot of those countries, like in Jamaica, there's a lot of affection for the queen and a lot of continuing connection and a sense of loyalty to the monarchy and a sense of dignity that she is the head of state of their nation as well as Britain. At the same time that there's also a strong counterculture that rejects all of that as racist and imperialist. And, you know, you can think of like the Rastafari tradition, which looks to Ethiopia and to Haile Selassie as sort of their symbolic leader, not the Queen of England. So what the royal family does can affect the morale, the the situation in these countries and whether or not they're going to... Oh, yeah. Well, and it affects like who gets the benefit of access to a British market, Trinidad and Tobago or... Belgium. You know, that sort of thing is at stake. And we really do not know what the Queen thinks about the EU. She's very tight-lipped about any controversial policy matter, and she's been very careful not to say and not to give any indication of where she is one way or another on the question of European integration. But that in itself shows that she views it very differently from the the Commonwealth relationship, which she really is invested in. And, you know, that's part of why so much of the monarchy today is caught up in these, you know, grand tours of Australia, like you saw with Charles and Diana, and then again with Harry and Meghan. They sort of made a big splash on their tour of Australia. You know, this... This is clearly the direction the queen wants the monarchy to go in, is in maintaining these relationships. Okay, we're about to get into the crisis. I think we should start talking about the crisis. But before we do that, let's just give a little bit more of a concrete example. Like, what could realistically happen, let's say, if the queen just went all out, became like a super evil, and no, <laughs> no one liked her? What, like, what would real, like, like, what's, like, what are some of the real consequences that could happen in, say, Jamaica? Well, they could declare themselves a republic, in which case they would automatically be out of the Commonwealth. Once they were a republic, they could apply to rejoin the Commonwealth or not, or they could go a different way. And, you know, Jamaica is an example of a country that also has a left wing. And at certain times in the 1970s, they had real ties with Cuba and could very conceivably have gone in the direction of more of a Soviet and Cuba-aligned socialist state, uh, but that didn't end up happening for various reasons. So, you know, even though the Cold War is over and that's off the table, there are still real questions. You know, what about Africa? There's now this kind of great game scramble for Africa going on between Western Europe and the U.S. on the one hand and China on the other hand. And where are some of these countries like Tanzania going to end up going? There's... There, there are geopolitical consequences here to things that seem so inconsequential and so outdated and silly even. Okay, well, I think we should get into some of the inconsequential details of the scandal then. I, I, I want you to spill the beans. I want you to tell, tell us oh what, what happened. What actually happened? Who are these people? So I I shouldn't get too deeply into the current crisis because that you can read about more. But but I'll tell you some about sort of the outline of what's happened and why I think how I think you can see it in the context of the repeated crises in the monarchy over the past 200 years. So, you know, Meghan Markle is a new phenomenon It is not the first time that someone from an unexpected and unusual background has married into the royal family. There have been people who are of 
lower status, who had no diplomatic value, who ended up marrying and becoming royalty. So that's not totally new, but she is the first American. And there, there is a long pattern going back to the Gilded Age of rich American heiresses marrying into the British aristocracy and getting a certain kind of inside track that way, like the, the Consuelo Vanderbilt who married the Duke of Marlborough. So that sort of thing has happened, but never in the royal family. So this is the first time an American and a woman of color, a woman who is biracial, with partly African ancestry. So those things are new and they're obvious. And in some ways, you can see Meghan Markle, obviously, there are, there are comparisons to be made to Diana, right, of a woman who was very modern-minded, very in tune with pop culture, uh, kind of came from a new generation, had a sense of how to work with the media, uh, and was glamorous and, you know, set fashion trends. So you can see parallels there with Diana, but there's also a difference that I think is significant, too, with Meghan Markle, which is that... She's a mature woman. You know, she keeps herself looking nice and young, but she's mature. She's either my age or a little older. I think she's a bit older than me. She's now in her late 30s. Uh, when she married Prince Harry, she was 36, and she was actually slightly older than Diana was when she died. So already older than Diana ever got to be. And so she was a woman who had some life experience, who had a career, you know, whatever you want to say about it. You know, she was not like Julia Roberts, but she was a professional with a career, with her own money, with her own network of friends and colleagues, her own little bit of fame. She was a minor celebrity already before she met Harry. So all these things were already kind of in her pocket before she even showed up on the royal scene. And I think all of that really came to bear, that she was coming in with different expectations and a different sense of herself and different options of what she could do if her relationship with the royal family didn't work out. <laughs> so all of this is sort of exploded, right? She meets Harry. They have a very quick courtship. They seem to hit it off, which already right there set off alarm bells in the royal family that already kind of put some people on guard, that this might be a problem, that she was, you know, she was famous and she was glamorous like Diana, but she also was not like a virginal young aristocratic lady like Diana. She was a foreigner. She had, you know, been on television, which is like very questionable right from the get-go. And it was a quick courtship. This was, she was not vetted for years and years like Kate Middleton was. Kate Middleton comes from a middle-class family, but she was like under the microscope for years before she was allowed into the palace. This was not true with Meghan Markle. It happened much quicker. She made a big splash. It got huge international attention. Of course, Americans are very excited, or should be, uh, about an American woman marrying into the royals for the first time. And clearly there was tension right from the beginning. This was not going to turn out well. And we don't know a lot of the details, but she clearly wasn't happy. Harry was not happy either. She doesn't have to be buddy-buddy with her in-laws. She does not have to be buddy-buddy with Kate. But it became pretty clear that they didn't really associate much. They didn't really want to have much to do with each other, the, the William and Kate branch of the family and the Harry and Meghan branch. And the press just tore her to shreds. You know, and the 
the British press is a whole character in this drama. And they are also really powerful. And this was one of the things that really struck me when I went to Britain to do research just for a month, several years ago, is, you know, in America, people watch TV and there's lots of junk out there and lots of, you know, rumors and spin. In Britain, it's printed. It's on, it's cheapo newspapers that are given out for free, like on the tube. And they are everywhere and people read them. People really read them and, like, believe them. It's amazing the power that these, you know, the Daily Mirror and the Sun and the Telegraph, the News of the World is now defunct, but they were still around when I was in England. And they really set the tone for a lot of people, you know, which can be shocking, I think, to an American because we think of British media like BBC and these costume dramas <laughs> and good newscasts. But man, they are awash in crap press in Britain. And they just went to town on Meghan Markle, not on Harry, because he's a golden boy, because he's the Queen's grandson and he's Diana's son. But they sure did on Meghan Markle. So in the rest is history, right? The rest you can see in the Oprah interview. We don't know how much of what they said in that interview is true, right? And we haven't gotten the other side of the story. So we can, you know, withhold judgment on that. But we know what they've said. And we know that the palace is, the palace just really wants this to go away. I think the royal family and the royal staff really want this to just disappear. And they just don't know what to do about it. And uh, they've blown it. You know, they've just blown it. They were completely unprepared for the whole situation. And... They blew it in the same way they did with Diana. So, yeah, so how does the scandal compare to other scandals that the royal family has gone through and 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 the effects of those scandals on on the people? yeah, so there's there's the obvious comparison with Diana, you know, as which has a lot of parallels. It's closely connected. You know, Harry is Diana's son, and he clearly has that weighing on him in how he deals with this problem with his wife and the palace. But there's, in a way, Diana was also just kind of the latest iteration or the Diana Charles breakup was just the latest iteration in kind of a repeating dilemma in the royal family that they seem unable to cope with and they have no strategy to deal with. And it's the fact that as I said, the royal family is so symbolically important. So they're constantly in the public eye. People are constantly judging and responding to everything they do, public and private. And there's really no privacy, right? Someone recently, you know, on Twitter, the, 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 the palace put out a statement saying, we're going to deal with this issue with Meghan Markle internally. We're sorry it's been so hard for her. We're now going to work it out in private. And I responded and said, that's really not true as long as there's a royal family. There, nothing about them is private. They have this life of incredible luxury and fame because they are invested with this, with sovereignty, really, you know, with this kind of uh, role of embodying the nation and setting the tone for the country. And how can anyone possibly do that, especially someone who never chose that and who was born into it? And what you end up getting, I think, in the dynasty over and over again is you get this split between two different personality types who sort of alternate. And on the one hand, you have the dutiful, the sort of dowdy, dour, dutiful monarchs who don't like being famous, don't like being celebrities, really prefer to be private. But they kind of go through the motions out of a sense of responsibility. 
And then on the other hand, you have a kind of opposite personality that's very convivial and loves socializing and loves the fame and and attention and wants to have fun with it, who wants to party and travel and be see and be seen and who really look forward to being the monarch and see that being the monarch not as just a responsibility, but as something fun to to really play up. And what's so interesting and so ironic, I think, is these two different personalities tend to really resent each other. And there's all these just little wars and you know, nasty, catty little fights between these two different sort of royal types. While meanwhile, the public just likes all of them. The public just sees them all as great and maybe have more affection for one or the other individual. But it all kind of works out in the end. The public just loves the entertainment of it. And this is sort of the cycle I think you see happening over and over. If you go and, you know, and Victoria is sort of the big figure that just casts a shadow over everything. And Victoria, you know, was a dutiful monarch. She was very moralistic. She was extremely prim and proper. She had this amazing ability to understand and echo the tastes and the sensibilities of the British middle class. They were almost in this, they were somehow simpatico, even though she had no communication with them. <laughs> she was totally sequestered. But she just understood the zeitgeist of Victorian England, and that's why it's Victorian. And she really was determined to make a break with her uncles, with what she called her wicked uncles, and that's George IV and William IV. So if you think of Bridgerton, the Regency period, that was the time period when George III was still technically the king, but he had severe dementia and couldn't govern. So rulership passed to his son, who became the prince regent, right? He's regent in the sense that he's actually carrying out the duties of the ruler, even though he's technically not king yet. And he and the regency started to introduce this sense of pageantry and luxury and love of partying and travel and then when he came to the throne it was just like madness he was just fat he was feasting all the time he had mistresses everywhere he was having shindigs in scotland it was just uh you know like mayhem but but very dignified right and then he's succeeded by he has no children he has no legitimate children so he's succeeded by his brother, William, who's similar. And just like the palace is just like a like a den of, of it's a flesh pot, right? He's just loving it. And then it passes to his niece, Victoria, because he has no legitimate heirs either. So it goes to Victoria, comes to the throne, 18 years old, has been living this sequestered life with tutors and you know bodyguards, making sure she doesn't fall down the stairs because God forbid, then we have no heirs left. And she says, I'm, she cleans house, right? She says, this, this palace is now going to be a model of moral living. And we are going to show that Britain is a civilized society worthy of our position at the forefront of the world. We are worthy of governing this massive empire because we are the height of civilization. And she marries this German prince, madly in love. They love, love, love each other. And he dies not long after in 1861 when he's in his 40s and Victoria is just crushed she's just crushed she goes into mourning and never comes out for the rest of her life which is 40 years she wears black she has no celebrations 
And she only comes out for occasional state events, like the giving out of major honors, and a few times for the opening of parliament, but usually not even for that. And the funny thing is, this really works for her, because she's seen as very serious, and she takes no pleasure in being queen or in doing the ceremonial duties of of the monarchy. So people really appreciate it. And she has this great dignity and a kind of air of mystery around her. They call her the widow of Windsor because she's sort of <laughs> this, you know, almost like a like Miss Havisham. She's like locked away in her castle. And it really increases the air and of of dignity and mystery and importance around the monarchy at the same time that she's not really doing much. And it ends up really working out well for them. But the problem is, who comes after her? So she's queen for 64 years, which seems unbelievable for someone to rule for that long, 64 effing years. It's like three generations she's on the throne. And everyone is waiting for her to die or abdicate and give it to her son, who becomes known as Edward. And she doesn't. She hangs on till the bitter end. Does this sound familiar? Uh, yeah, a little <laughs> sound, bit. Sound familiar? She hangs on to the bitter end. And one of the reasons is because she has this son who in many ways has his own talents and his own qualities, but is the opposite of her. And that is Al- Prince Albert Edward. And she, I don't know if hate is too strong a word, but she certainly distrusts her son and sees him as lazy and irresponsible. He's not studious enough. He's not dutiful enough. He likes partying and dancing and all these kind of dirty things that Victoria would have nothing to do with. He has many mistresses. He likes going on tour and inspecting the troops in different countries, but of course he has a mistress in every camp, and everybody knows it. And the thing that really makes Victoria resent him is that, or the the final cherry on top, is that he goes to Ireland to review the troops. He sleeps with an actress in Ireland. Everyone knows it. He then goes back to his studies at Cambridge. And Victoria and Albert are just furious and disgusted. And Albert is sick. He has some kind of chest illness. But he still, nonetheless, gets on the train and goes to Cambridge to scold him and reprimand his son. And then he dies. He gets typhoid fever and dies. So Victoria holds this against him. So for 40 years, you have this queen who's just bitter and blames her son. And she says he's totally unfit. And he has there are these famous letters where she says he's the poor country has this horribly unfit successor. What's going to happen to them? And after she finally dies, he takes the throne and everybody's pretty happy about it. And he parties and he feasts and he's fat. But he also does his work. He reviews state affairs and acts of parliament And he's more active than Victoria was. And he also acts, he's active as a diplomat. He goes abroad to Europe in particular. And he sort of starts to set this new tone, this new way of thinking that now that we are moving out of the sort of stuffy Victorian age into this more fun, tolerant, open Edwardian age, we should have a closer relationship with Europe and we should make up with France. And he goes on state visits to France and gets along smashingly with the the French president. And it sort of begins this little move towards reorientation away from the empire towards Europe. So you think the royal family is contributed to that move of of Britain towards the EU. 
Yes. Well, this is well before the EU exists, but there's no doubt that Edward VII sets up a parallel track where Britain can start to see themselves differently. And, and Edward is the first public figure to use this phrase entente cordiale, which is the sort of understanding that Britain and France should be aligned against Germany. And it also comes to include Russia. So it sort of lays the groundwork for World War I, right? Having Britain and France and Russia together sort of encircling Germany. And really, I think from that point on, there's this kind of tension between is Britain an imperial country that draws its strength and its prestige from the support of the colonies, or is it a European country that should fit into a new convivial, peaceful Europe? And there's been a continual tug of war between those two different uh, avenues for Britain, these two different futures for Britain, you could say. And a lot of that drama has been acted out within the royal family, between these different figures and these different personalities who see things totally differently. And I think, you know, Victoria and Edward embody a lot of that. And Victoria, you know, she was tremendously admired, but sort of there, there are even more dimensions to this sort of uh, shift in thinking from Victoria to Edward, where Edward was, he was much more pro-Europe, he loved the French. He made a great impression in France. He was German. His father, Albert, was from Germany, and he also was fluent in German. He even spoke English with a bit of a German accent. And he was more tolerant about who should get access to the monarch and the royal court. And he included people who never would have been seen on palace grounds, under Victoria. So he brings in people from the industrial middle class, like Lipton, the head of the Lipton Tea Company. Edward goes on a big yachting trip with Mr. Lipton, which the German prince Wilhelm called going sailing with your grocer. <laughs> and uh, it's just, just unheard of for British royalty or European royalty to do things like that with basically new money, right? Bourgeois new money. Also Jews. He brought Jews into the royal court and made great friends with Jewish financiers and philanthropists, which also shook things up and set Britain really on a course of accepting and tolerating Jews as fully equal British subjects much more than before. Uh, you know, Judaism only became legal in Britain in the 1830s. Or, well, I should say Brit Jews only became equal subjects with voting rights in Britain in the 1830s. And also, it was under Edward that the Labour Party first gained seats in Parliament and became a political force. And Edward completely embraced this. And he said, I'm going to bring the leaders of the Labour Party, I'm going to bring the trade union organizers, the later Labour MPs to the palace. And he feasted with them and partied with them and everyone had fun. And people walked away saying, I can't believe I just you know, I'm just like a trade union shop steward. And I just like had dinner with the king and he made me feel completely welcome or almost completely. And that also really shook things up and established that organized labor and the labor party have a legitimate place in the British power system. They are not to be seen as just anarchists or foreign infiltrators. They have a real place. And it made a real impression on people. And there's this wonderful anecdote where apparently Keir Hardy, one of the most radical socialist and Republican leaders of, of labor. So he, he, he favored abolishing the monarchy. But he became sick, and King Edward wrote 
a very nice note inquiring after his health and expressing concern. And one of these, you know, palace kind of gray men, middle managers said, oh, you don't want to do that. He's a Republican. And King Edward said, well, you don't understand me. I'm the king of everybody, whether they like it that way or not. <laughs> and he, in, in, in different ways, I think you can see Victoria and Edward VII setting up these kind of two alternate and kind of competing models of who is the monarch and what sort of influence should they have on the country. And they've just continued to be in tension right down through the years. And all of these different clashes and crises that have happened, I think, are all really weighing on Queen Elizabeth and the royal family in a way that the public just doesn't know, because the royal family, this is a key thing, the royal family has an incredibly long memory, and the public has a very short memory. <laughs> so there's all kinds of stuff going on in their heads that the rest of us generally just don't think about or care about, but they think it's important. So you have Edward VII, who basically parties himself to death in 1910, and, you know, and he was a fairly well-liked and, and he was a diligent monarch. You know, he did the sort of work that Victoria had done and more, really. And then it passes to George, to his son, George, who becomes George V. And George V, in a lot of ways, is much more like Victoria. He's very private. He has very simple, kind of middle-class tastes. He lives in a small, well, you know, by royal standards, a small cottage, which was still a very nice house near Sandringham instead of kind of living it up at Buckingham and, and you know, the nicer palaces. And he doesn't travel. I think he says abroad is frightful. I've been there. <laughs> so he doesn't go abroad. He's very shy and retiring. And he sort of appeals again to this Victorian sensibility of private, respectable, bourgeois lifestyle. But he also really likes the Labour Party. And in fact, he... George V is the last monarch who really significantly intervenes in politics, basically in favor of labor. And in 1931, when the Depression hits, people don't know, well, it seems as if labor is just going to collapse, their government's going to collapse, and the conservatives are going to set up an alternative government. But George intervenes and says, no, 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 we should create a government of national unity, and labor should have an equal voice in this coalition government along with the Tories, which, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows, like, should the king even be doing this? But he saw this as part of his role as a conciliator, and he wanted to show everyone was included. And in a way, you could say George V kind of managed to balance or mix and match these different elements left over from Victoria and Edward. So we're seeing how the sensibilities and the actions of these royals who have ostensibly only symbolic power actually mm -hmm. does affect outcomes of how coalition governments are formed and people's opinions of new movements like the labor movement. Yeah. Do you think the sensibilities and like kind of either if you're more Vic, uh, more like Victoria or more like e Edward uh, affected how soon Britain got involved in the world wars? Well, that's a complicated matter. Yeah, I mean George V really stayed out of the 1914 crisis that got them into World War One, and he was still a pretty young and new king at that point, and he was distracted with complicated internal problems like about the House of Lords and and the radical labor movement, so he didn't really play much role there. In the 30s, everyone knew, you know, with the rise of Hitler, 
it was a huge dividing line in British politics. And that only came to a head after 1936, which is when the abdication crisis happened, which is really the biggest, most potentially dangerous crisis for the monarchy happened in the last hundred years. And it's something that still really hangs over Queen Elizabeth in a way that we just like don't think about because like who cares like (laughs) doesn't matter this is when her uncle who was next in line for the throne abdicated who was king yes so george v dies at the beginning of 1936 if i remember correctly and it passes the throne passes to his elder son edward who becomes edward the eighth and edward in by all appearances by all appearances Edward was more like his grandfather, Edward VII, where he loved to party, he loved to dance, he was known as a socialite, and he was very much seen, and he loved to socialize, even with people of, you know, middling status. He, he wasn't so exclusive in who he would wine and dine and dance with. And this made him very popular and he was handsome and charming. And people were really looking forward to sort of a fun time when he came to the throne. But he also was unmarried. And he comes to the throne as Edward VIII. And basically immediately it comes to, it leaks out and comes to public attention that he has been spending private time with a divorced American socialite named Wallace Simpson, who, you know, has friends and admirers, but is not even particularly socially reputable among American circles, and is twice divorced. And he really wants to marry her. And this is so beyond the pale to the whole British establishment, to the aristocracy, the House of Lords, and especially the church. It just and it, com- it blows to bits this Victorian idea that the monarch is the moral exemplar for the country. So there's danger that, that the, the monarchy and the church are going to lose all of that prestige that they've built up from Victoria. And the, the prime minister is like really scared and doesn't know what to do and tries to put his foot down and say, you know, you really can't marry her and be king. The church, the Archbishop of Canterbury might not even crown you. He might refuse to put the crown on your head. And this is this is a big problem. So the king himself, of his own initiative, says, well, then I'll abdicate. I will no longer be king because it's more important to me to marry Wallace. And this is seen as a huge travesty to the rest of the royal family, including to his younger brother, George, or Albert George, becomes known as George VI, who is very much of the Victoria-type personality, who really wants to be private, who hates public view. He has a stutter. He's immensely self-conscious. He doesn't, and, and he understands that his brother doesn't want the scrutiny and the responsibility of being monarch, but neither does George, and he really resents Edward for foisting this on him and forcing him to be king when he thought he would get away with it and just have to be a prince and, you know, fade off into obscurity. So George gets thrust into the role of being king when he feels very unprepared for it. He has tremendous insecurities. It really weighs on him. And it's thrust right into the middle of this crisis of what do we do about Hitler and the Nazis? And can we rally the Americans to our side? Can we create some kind of united front against Hitler and the Nazis? 
And just to make it worse, Edward and Wallace, they, you know, leave. They are given this honorary title of Duke and Duchess of Windsor, so they don't, they don't have to be monarchs. They are Nazi sympathizers, and they go and visit Hitler and have fun with him and do photo ops with him, all against the advice of the palace. And it becomes known and understood in the British government that the Nazis want to build a relationship with Edward. And their idea is that if they successfully invade and occupy Britain, they will eliminate George and put Edward back on the throne with Wallace as queen, which is Edward's dearest wish, is to have Wallace. He doesn't care about himself having the title. He wants Wallace to be queen. That's what matters to him. It's all about her. And he's bitterly resentful that she was insulted and slighted and not allowed to have that status. So there's this looming danger of an alliance between Edward and Wallace and the Nazis. And that's sort of hanging over their heads then during the Battle of Britain and when they're under attack, you know, in the Blitz. And this is, I think, where a sort of the monarchy again transforms into this new role, that they're no longer serving as kind of the ceremonial heads of the empire, representing Britain as the civilized country at the lead of this empire. Now they have to act as symbols to the country the, to, of itself. And they make the decision not to leave Britain and go take shelter in Canada. They stay in Buckingham Palace in London as the bombs are coming down. A bomb does go through the roof of Buckingham Palace, not far from where the king was at that moment. And they decide that they're just going to stay in London and they're going to tour the wreckage and they're going to meet with workers at the factories and they're going to show this steely stamina that we are standing up to the Nazis and we're not afraid. And this, I think, really set the model and the tone then for Elizabeth. Right? Elizabeth sees this as the way to do monarchy. You soldier on, you shake the hands, you do the photo ops, you do what you're supposed to do, you never show weakness, you never retreat, and you hang on till you, <laughs> till you die. <laughs> you, know, you never go. And that's really what she believes in, that it, that's her job. And she sort of fits into this personality type of she doesn't like it. She feels she blames Edward for putting her into the line of succession, right? If Edward had remained on the throne and had children, then she would never have had to be queen. So she really resents him. And she sees herself as this kind of new Victoria figure who should just stay on the throne forever. And the same sort of little drama then recreates itself, where she is there on the throne as kind of mother of the nation and symbol of the Commonwealth. She's now head of the Commonwealth, just like Victoria was queen empress of the empire. And she feels that she can never leave because she doesn't trust her son and doesn't think that he is dutiful enough to take up the role after her. And she clearly doesn't trust Charles. And... Um, <laughs> maybe maybe is holding out you know she's now been on the throne for 68 effing years uh, which is a record for britain and is closing in on the world record for monarchs which is louis the 14th who is king for 72 years so she's getting close to the all-time record in recorded history and she will never go <laughs> she will never give up and she doesn't want to she clearly doesn't want to pass it on to charles 
And for many years, people said, well, um, she would never do to Charles what Victoria did to Edward. She would never humiliate him by forcing him to be second banana and wait in the wings for decades. But that's exactly what she's done. And she's done it for longer than Victoria did. And what is, what, what's going on? What is she thinking? Um, Charles, you know, if you think of Charles in comparison, in a lot of ways, he has a lot of things in common with Edward VII, whom Victoria distrusted. But he's not convivial and charming and charismatic like Edward VII was. He's a bit of a cold fish. I'm sure a nice guy in a lot of ways. He's done a lot of good work for charity. We love it. <laughs> but he is not Mr. Convivial like Edward VII or Edward VIII was. But I think there's a critical thing that happened with Edward VIII where he, as Prince of Wales, he became kind of a celebrity. And there's this wonderful pop song. You know, I've been listening to these lectures by this royal historian Vernon Bogdanor, who explains a lot of this stuff in finer detail. But if you don't know the context, you might not be able to follow it. But he goes into more detail about these these monarchs. And he plays this song, a pop song from 1927, called I Danced with a Man Who Danced with a Girl Who Danced with the Prince of Wales. And everyone in the world is just so charmed and talking about how many degrees of separation they had to the Prince of Wales, who was just out there in society all the time. And he became something of a star. This is Edward VIII. Right. So this is the prince who became Edward VIII in, and then abdicated right. very quickly after. So Edward discovered something. He discovered that you could keep the monarchy relevant by sort of tapping into modern celebrity and using the sort of visibility in the mass media of radio and pop music and and going on ocean liners and airplanes. And he, he figured out that the, the monarchy had this sort of celebrity to it that could make it still matter to people and connect to people, even as it was politically sidelined. But he also then discovered that you could still have that celebrity and be in the public eye and have the glamour and the fame without actually having the responsibilities of being the monarch. You could kind of have your cake and eat it too. And I think arguably that's what he did as Duke of Windsor was he could overshadow and, you know, be more handsome and more charming and more glamorous and more fashionable than King George or Queen Elizabeth. While just, you know, going to Central Pay and not having to do things like open parliament and give the Queen's speech, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's why the royal family saw the abdication crisis as a huge disaster and as a bullet that they barely dodged. They thought it could bring down the monarchy, but the public didn't really care that much. The public said, oh, you know, well, that's his right. If he really loves that woman, fine, go off and do that. And we still think he's kind of cool, but we also like the king. The king's the king, and he's, he's doing a fine job too. The public could just kind of accept it all as part of the show, right? But the royal family absolutely hated him for it and, and saw him as a, a failure and as a threat. And the queen today still clearly has that in her mind. That was part of her formative experience as a child. And it was kind of drilled into her, never be in Edward VIII, never do that to us, never do that to the country and the empire. And she sees Charles as something similar she see she she clearly was uncomfortable with charles getting attention as younger as a man 
as getting attention and fame that could compete with her. And she also, she felt that his relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles was fine as long as it all remained under the rug and as long as it didn't interfere with the duties and the show of the monarchy. But it did, right? And I think she blames both Charles and Diana for blowing the situation up and throwing it out there in the public view and creating another crisis, the biggest one to hit the monarchy since since the abdication crisis in 1936. And I think that she's adjusted to it probably as much as she can. But today she's a 94-year-old woman. I mean, how much is she going to leap into completely new modes of thinking? And how much is she really going to understand how the public views her when she's never, never, never been in any position anything like that? She doesn't have this kind of magical sympathy with the public the way Victoria did. She is dutiful. She does the job. She understands she has to go out there and make the public appearances. And people really appreciate her for that. They appreciate that she's been, she's always showed up and she's never shirked it, even though she doesn't like it. And she's just lasted. She's just, you know, it's like Betty White. There's this effect where you've just been around for so long. You get credit just for that. And so there's great admiration for the queen at the same time that, you know, what can you say? She just, she, she can't have total mastery over all of these problems and all of these ambiguities. And I think that's what's shown up now with the Meghan Markle crisis, right? Like, wow, they just completely blew this. And, but no one says that the queen was not welcoming to Meghan Markle. Everyone on inside and outside always says the queen was so positive and so supportive and wanted to stand shoulder to shoulder with Meghan Markle. But she doesn't really have total control over the palace staff who make a lot of these decisions, who really are the real power behind the throne, you could say. And she doesn't have control over the press. You know, there's only so much she can do to change how people view this biracial American modern woman so it it's all kind of gone south and i'm well i mean obviously it's all gone south but more than that the fact that she is biracial i think made this a kind of test right of okay can you really put your money where your mouth is if you're trying to cast the monarchy as this uh, unifying symbolic institution for the whole commonwealth where the monarch can go out there and shake hands and grant titles to people in Jamaica and New Zealand and, you know, the the transgender councilwoman in Wairarapa can become an OBE and visit the palace. If, if you really believe in all that, well, okay, what about when we're talking about your great-grandchild being biracial <laughs> and having... African ancestry? What about the possibility, however remote, however remote, the possibility of a person with African heritage becoming the monarch? Because that's really what they're signing on to when they say Prince Harry can marry this woman and have children, and they are seventh or eighth or ninth in line for the throne. It means that you're at least legally recognizing that that could happen. And I think that's a test, and it's a test that, for whatever reason, they failed. So do you think 
depending on how the public perceives this ultimately is it, 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 it could could the public take this and 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 say well this is a evidence of the monarchy being racist or and is that is that kind of what's at stake and and the kind of repercussions of that well that's that's actually i think really complicated because we don't really know what happened exactly in those private conversations. Prince Harry said that they happened. It's not Meghan who said that. It's Prince Harry who said that those conversations happened where someone in the royal household brought repeatedly brought up concerns of what color will your baby be, which is shocking to a lot of people. Probably not shocking to some people, but shocking to many others. We don't know exactly what went on and what was said. Uh, so, you know, we can't judge too much just based on that. But there is, I think, there's this tension that's happened, that's built up all through Elizabeth's reign, where Britain has become a more diverse country in terms of religion and color and national origin. There's much more immigration. You know, you now have over 10% of residents of Britain are foreign-born, whether in Europe or the Commonwealth. So it's really, it really has changed significantly in that way. And there's been really divided reaction to that. And there's a great irony, you know, in this flap over Brexit, this crisis over Brexit, where you had some proponents of Brexit were racist. I'm certainly not going to say all, but some proponents of Brexit were racist and didn't want to see migration of refugees from the Middle East, etc., through Europe to Britain. And some opponents of Brexit were anti-racist, not all, but some, who, you know, see the EU as a cosmopolitan institution representing tolerance, coexistence with other nations, etc., and yet, really, the non-white migration into Britain overwhelmingly has come from the Commonwealth, not from the EU. And the Commonwealth is what the Queen really believes in actively and fights for actively, not the EU. So if the Queen is historically being seen as kind of pro, uh, just like a, a universal, uh, like pro including lots of people in... In, yeah, yeah, and I think in the room of of power and and knighting scientists and and knighting all sorts and of appointing people. governor generals who are Maori or or Black West Indian, etc. Well, the thing is, there's clearly a swath of British society that's been kind of you know adjusting, feeling out. All right, what does this mean? What are we now as Britons? Who do we have to be nice to? Do we really have to talk to those people? You know, there's been this tension and friction and a certain number of people could uh, could adjust because they saw that the monarchy was in favor of Britain being an open, multiracial, you could say multicultural society and that this was the future and that Britain, this would only enhance Britain's dignity, that they would continue to have this dignified place and this place of respect among the Commonwealth. But meanwhile, there's this older sense of the monarchy, right, that that the monarchy represents Britain because Britain is the more advanced nation. And that and so when monarchs go and visit Fiji or Antigua and Barbuda, they, uh, you know, greet smiling crowds. They go on the local radio. They accept diplomatic gifts from the local elites. But this is all showing that they are this. They're the mother country. Right. They have a, a position of superiority. Right. And this keeps coming 
this friction keeps coming to a head over and over again, like with uh, the Queen and Margaret Thatcher, who had bitter conflicts. And, you know, the Queen really insisted on going to Chogham, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which she saw as very important. And Thatcher, it was reported in the press that Thatcher and her ministers called Chogham compulsory handouts for greedy mendicants. So they were just utterly contemptuous of the other Commonwealth nations. That reminds me of shithole countries. Yeah, it's the same sort of sentiment as those are shithole countries. And why would we have anything to do with them? We're an advanced democratic industrial society. So the queen is, has, so actions like that where it's like, I'm the queen of Britain, I'm the queen of, of the Commonwealth, but I'm still going to go to the important government meeting of this smaller nation Doing that for 70 years or almost 70 years has given the queen a reputation of being associated with multiculturalism and acceptance. So, yes, you, and all evidence is that she approves of that. She does want to be seen as a tolerant queen like Edward VII. You know, I, you don't understand. I'm king of all the people. I don't care if they're Jews. I don't care if they're socialists. I'm the king of all the people. The queen wants to project that same sentiment. and But what happens when it's in your own family, right? It, it's, it's this, you know, it's guess who's coming to dinner, right? It's like, oh, you say you're so liberal and so tolerant. What about when your kid comes home with one of them? You know, or you say you're so liberal and you're so tolerant. What about when the city government says, and we're going to integrate your kid's school? Right, so your right. kid's school is going to be half black. A lot of people, oh, suddenly, suddenly <laughs> they become something different or maybe the same thing, depending on how you interpret it. But this put things to the test. And it's hard to say how much does this reflect on the queen herself? Well, it seems like, I mean, Harry and, and Meghan have given the queen an out, right? They've said like, oh, she really had nothing to do with this. The queen was wonderful. I think right. whether or not that's true, they at least seem politically smart enough to say that. Yes. And right. Exactly. We don't know what the whole truth is. And they may completely mean it. And based on the Queen's history, it may be totally true that that she was completely positive about this. But again, she's also over 90 years old. And part of this, I think you have to sort of take as a result of the fact that she will not abdicate. She cannot do it. And so things are going on that are still in her name. She's still the monarch. The, ultimately, the buck should stop with her. She is still the person on the throne who chooses to be there. And at least in title, she's responsible for what the royal palace does. And yet, does she really know what's going on? Does she really know about the, the negotiations and the deals that are being made between palace staff and the press? Does she really know what... Uh, conversations are going on about who gets information or who can report about Prince Andrew and his refusal to talk about his involvement in child molestation. Meanwhile, uh, those same reporters are just going hog wild about everything Meghan Markle does. Is the Queen really on top of that? I really doubt it. I doubt that she even has a clue what's going on most of the time that's determining these sorts of events. And this is all blown up in her face. So what what are some of the other big and unanswered questions, either uh, because they're intriguing uh, personally 
because they're about the royal family and that could refl- and and that might be a bit of a symbol of of our personal lives or 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 what are or what are sort of the unanswered questions about the, like the geopolitical fallout of this well there are a lot of things i mean there's been a lot of talk and i'm guilty of this there's been a lot of talk about these alleged conversations in which someone questioned the color of megan and harry's child but really the the more serious misconduct is the allegation the more serious allegation of misconduct is the notion that Meghan Markle said that she was having mental health problems and felt suicidal and she was prevented from getting mental health help. I mean, that's a real matter of life and death. It's it's a travesty if it's true. And it may be true. And if so, it may be in writing. And it may depend on will the palace hold an investigation and look into whether that really happened or not? Is there another side to the story? And if they don't, will Meghan and Harry at some point in future simply give those documents to the press anyway and expose it whether they like it or not? That's really the huge looming danger, I think, that that someone who has a lot of power over the activities of the royal family will be exposed as as doing something that egregious. And if so, who who knew? Did the queen know? And the other person, you know, who is really at stake here at the center of all this is Charles. Because as the monarch ages, you know, eventually the younger, the successor steps into a kind of regency role, as happened when, you know, George III had dementia and the prince had to become prince regent. You know, Charles, if the queen can't take responsibility for this, if she doesn't know what's going on, then what did Charles know and what decisions did he make? And this interview was disastrous for him. And he's already not very, he's not beloved you know, for many reasons, partly because of his his history. He's not beloved. Um, and the queen clearly does not relish the idea of him becoming king either. So the big looming question really is, what did Charles know? What kind of decisions did he make? And will that affect whether he becomes king at all? Will it affect how he's received and perceived as king? And if he really does still want to be king, which seems kind of unbelievable at this point, that he could possibly think that that would ever work, then that really does call into question, are people going to continue to support this? Do Are people going to continue to see this as beneficial or inspiring to the country? Are they going to have this kind of sentimental attachment to the monarchy if Charles is king? And have there been conversations then? I think the, the, the ultimate com- question is, have there been conversations in the royal family, serious conversations about skipping Charles, about having him abdicate the throne or abdicate his title as Prince of Wales and pass it to William because William so far has been really squeaky clean and he's done everything right. Kate Middleton, 100% unobjectionable. There is a little bit of question now about, okay, well, but were they really so supportive of Harry and Meghan marrying? Were they really so accepting and tolerant? Was there some rivalry there? Was there some racism there? Could it have been William who brought up this matter about what color will Harry's child be? It's it's also possible in principle. 
so William is not as as totally spotless as he once was, and there are looming questions there. But it none. But still, it would be massive. It would be a massive relief, I think, for everyone, for all monarchists <laughs> in Britain and, and the Commonwealth, if Charles was just out of the picture and it just went to William, and you could just look forward to William coming in as the next generation. But who knows? Is that really going to happen? So it may be that we what we are going to end up with is not an abdication crisis like 1936, but a non-abdication crisis. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, final thoughts, Sam. Final main things that you think people should take away uh, when they think about the importance of the royal family and when they think about this scandal. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it goes back again to what you were asking at the beginning of why why does any of this matter and why should anyone care? And you have to consider, I think, when you really look at how events have unfolded and how British society has evolved and the international scene has evolved, the monarchy, as it has lost real hard political power, the power to appoint ministers, the power to veto legislation, their soft power, their soft influence has only grown. And I think that's not a coincidence. I think that today in the world in the 21st century, politicians are almost universally hated. Politician is a dirty word. Politics is a dirty word. People see politics as corrupt and, uh, you know, craven. And so then who could be a more powerful and more admired politician than one who's not a politician, one who's never had to run for office, who's never had to campaign, who's never had to make a policy compromise, make a backroom party deal, someone who has kept their hands completely clean. And that's the monarch. You know, that is Queen Elizabeth. And I think that Probably the tendency today is not to overestimate her power, but as Vernon Bogdanor, too, said, the tendency probably has been to underestimate the power that she really has, both to the public and within government. She meets with the prime minister every week privately. No one else, no other Briton gets that kind of access to the people who are really in power, which is the PM and the government. And if anything, she has exercised a lot more power than we have seen and perceived publicly. So these things, you know, these things matter, whether you like it or not, whether you think monarchy is cool or ridiculous or, you know, noble or hopelessly racist. It's there and it is impactful, I think. It's impactful, and uh, keep up making the good dresses, I guess. We want to see the dresses. We want the frocks. Give us the frocks. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, for sitting down uh, and uh, doing yeah, this emergency episode. This has been a test of the emergency podcast system. Um, hopefully this will be something that listeners can follow and make some sense of. And Yeah, and hopefully so soon I should be working on a myth of the month on the Founding Fathers who play a kind of, you could say, parallel role in America to the monarchy, this you know weird symbolic role. And that will be for patrons only. So if you want to hear that, please go to my Patreon page, become a patron. And also, at some point, I'll work on editing a, a short interview I had with an NPR reporter uh, a couple months ago about war and the pandemic 
and I hope I can edit that and put it out maybe for for free. Okay, sounds good. Thanks everyone. Okay, thanks. Bye.